How to Play, Episode 35, Twilight Struggle. Hello and welcome back to the How to Play podcast. This is your host, Ryan Sturm, coming to you from the How to Play studios in Western New York. The How to Play podcast is all about learning and teaching games. In each episode, I provide a full explanation to help you learn and learn to teach another great game. For more How to Play episodes, special episodes, teaching guides, our discussion forums, and to help support the show, visit our website at www.howtoplaypodcast.com. Also, be sure to visit our affiliated podcast on the Dice Tower Network at dicetowernetwork.com. Now let's get to today's episode. Hello everyone, thanks for listening. This is your host, Ryan Sturm, and today I'm very excited to talk about Twilight Struggle. And this episode was recorded on March 15th, 2012. It's a beautiful day in sunny Buffalo. I cracked open those windows for the first time in months. Sunshine, a warm breeze, and spring is coming. I hope spring is coming where you're at, except for, of course, my Australian and New Zealand friends. As you march towards winter's icy grasp. Ha ha ha! Oh. Okay. So as I said, today we're going to focus on one of my new game loves. This game is soaring up. It's becoming one of my favorite games, and that is Twilight Struggle. Let me begin with the disclaimer that GMT Games did send a copy of this game to me at my request. Thank you so much, GMT, for supporting the How to Play podcast. And so I was lucky enough to get one of their new 2011 Deluxe Edition versions of the game. Twilight Struggle was designed by Jason Matthews and Ananda Gupta, and it was released in the year 2005. And it plays with exactly two players. And so this is a game that's been out for a long time, and I avoided it for a, for a long, long time. And, and I think I avoided it for three reasons. Reason number one, it was only two players. Reason number two, it seemed too much like a war game from observing it at a distance. It all, had all these scary little chits and it was only two players. And, and three, the topic I really had no interest in, the theme of the game is the Cold War, the struggle between America and the Soviet Union between the 40s and 1990. I've never been that much into war or politics, and I was 11 at the end of the Cold War. My knowledge of the Cold War was restricted to such wonderful movies as Red Dawn and Rocky versus Ivan Drago and Rocky IV. I didn't have a whole lot of background knowledge from my own life that would draw me into an interest in the connection of this game. But let me tell you something, and because I think a lot of you probably have the same concerns of it being a two-player game, it being too wargamey, and a disinterest in the Cold War theme. You need to stop worrying and start loving Twilight Struggle because it is a phenomenal game. It has clean, elegant mechanics. I love games that don't need a whole ton of components. All this game is, to provide the game experience it does, is it has a game board, it has three decks of cards and red and blue chits and a red and blue die. And that's it. That's all you use to play the game. And, and I, I love that about the game. The turn structure is very simple. And I think you'll pick up the basic rules quite fast. But it's a very deep game with a lot to explore. And, and really that learning curve that I enjoy in games. The Cold War doesn't interest you. Who cares? It doesn't matter. If you want to play this game as red and blue pieces on a map, you will enjoy it just as much because the game is just as interesting if you want to play it completely abstractly. But I think that you'll have a hard time resisting getting pulled in by the connection between the gameplay and the thematic events that are occurring throughout the game. You will, by accident, get a, an education in the Cold War of that period of, of 30 to 40 years. And I've said time and time again that that is one of my favorite things that a game can do. Integrate its theme and still work as a great game. And that's what this game does. So if you have not played this game, I heartily encourage find a, a friend who has the game and, and give it a shot. I normally go over who won't like this game. And there are really very few negative points to bring up about Twilight Struggle. I think you could say that it's uh, limiting as a, a two-player game, and, and I understand that. But as far as a gameplay experience, I, 
I really think there's very few people who are gamers, who are serious hobby hobbyist gamers, who when they tried Twilight Struggle would be disappointed by it as a game experience. It is a great game experience. I guess I could see, I, I think I've heard some criticism of, of more of the diehard war gamers who would say that it's too simplistic and, and too abstract and are looking for a little more complexity um, from their games. But I think for the average hobbyist gamer, I think most gamers, when they play Twilight Struggle, they get the experience that they're looking for. And that is why it's been so highly rated on Board Game Geek for so long. It is deserved. So if you have not tried it out, give it a shot. This is really a great game to get someone who hasn't played it before and say, you know, hey, are you interested in exploring this game with me? We talk a lot on how to play about, you know, getting a game and really digging into it and playing it five to ten times. This is a game that makes it a lot easier to do that because it's only two people. You can get your most reliable game buddy and play it you know, once a week for a couple of months and really have a good time with it. Because that's exactly what I've been doing just about every Friday night, is exploring and having a great time with Twilight Struggle. The other advantage to uh, being one of these guys like me who likes to wait five years before getting some of these highly rated games like Twilight Struggle is that you get the upgraded versions. We talked about Game of Thrones 2nd Edition, really improving on the game. This one now comes in this Deluxe Edition package, which doesn't change the game a whole lot. What it does do is it it now comes with a mounted board before it was sort of a, a paper board. And the designers added a few cards to help balance the game a little bit. And they aren't really expansion cards. You, I was worried about playing with them right away, but those are meant to be thrown in your game right away. They add a little bit more variety to the game and help balance the scales a little bit between the two players. Complexity rating. This game is a black diamond. It's not a simple game, but I think it's pretty easy to pick up the first time that you play it. Though there is a lot of subtlety in the gameplay, so an experienced player would, would wipe the floor with a new player. And it's one of these games where there's about 150 cards or so, and so knowing what the cards in the deck are, are will be a strategic advantage as you get more plays in but it's also fun the first few times to play it is just to experience the cards as they come up and, and deal with things as they come so this is a gamers game but it's not one of the harder games to learn so let's get into it uh, the structure for the show we have our hook meat and then the hamster to give you some basic strategy as always if you can have that game in front of you or the rule book or access to the web to see the board and the components that will help you better understand the rules let's get started shall we part one the hook what the game is about welcome to twilight struggle world war ii is over two superpowers remain america and the soviet union both countries seek to spread their influence, ideologies, and ways of life across the world. As these two superpowers collide, tension builds as it seems the world is not large enough for both of them, and the threat of nuclear war being a very real possibility, perhaps ending the world as we know it. Which country will emerge from this conflict as the superior power? It is up to you. In this corner... The United States of America. To beat me, you'll have to kill me. And in this corner, the Soviet Union. I cannot be defeated. I beat all men. I must break you. In this game, you'll either play the USA or the Soviet Union. Your goal is to assert your dominance across the world. You will do this by placing influence tokens to control countries across the world. The game is played in up to 10 turns, with 6 or 7 rounds each. In each turn, players are dealt a hand of cards, and a round is played by players each taking their turn playing one of the cards in their hand, typically to add these influence tokens to the board, or to in some way affect the tokens that are already on the board. The most important cards in the deck are the scoring cards. The game starts with three scoring cards, Asia, Mideast, and Europe scoring. When dealt a scoring card, a player must play it during one of the rounds of that turn. Then players will score victory points based on who has better control, represented by more influence tokens in that region. The most common way the game ends is for a player to have scored 20 more victory points than his opponent. 
Though the game can last up to 10 turns, often a player is able to achieve victory after 4-8 to eight turns or hands of cards. However, the game can end in other ways as well. For beware, if you play a card that allows for nuclear war to begin, not only will millions of people suffer and both of your countries end up in ruins, but also, sadly, you will lose the game. Part 2. The Meat. How to Play the Game. The Components of the Game. So let's talk about those fabulous components. First of all, we have a beautiful game map. The game map is a map of the world, and each significant country or region in the board has the title of that country and two boxes underneath with which to hold these small influence markers, which are about a centimeter on a side. The American player will put his tokens on the west side of the box, and the Russian player will put his markers on the east side, and both players could have influence there. You'll also notice a number of tracks on that board. In the upper right corner, there is a turn track with 10 spots. The game can last up to 10 turns, and in each of those turns, we're going to have six or seven rounds. In the upper left corner, you'll see the round track, and every time a person plays a card, say the Russian player plays their card first, the round marker is two-sided. They will flip over the marker to the blue side, and then it will be the United States' turn. They will play a card. They'll advance it to the round two box, and this will continue for six rounds on the first turn of the game, and then we'll advance to turn two, and we'll play six rounds, and so on. In the lower right corner is the victory point track. The victory points in this game work a little bit differently. The victory points are a sliding scale. To start the game, the victory point marker is placed in the zero in the middle of the track. And say the America player scores two points, well, they would slide it two spots down the blue side of the track. And then if the Russian player scored four points, you would move it backwards. So it would go to the one, to the zero, to the red one, and the red two. And now the Soviet player is ahead by two. So you're essentially only scoring the difference in victory points. If a player manages to get to the plus 20 on either side, then that player immediately wins the game. Another track is the DEFCON track. DEFCON stands for Defense Readiness Condition, and this basically means how close the world is to nuclear war. DEFCON 5 means everything's peachy and flowers. Events in the game are going to lower this one level. If you play a card that causes the DEFCON to go to level 1, you have started a nuclear war. And although the world will end up in ashes, your opponent is considered to have won the game. There are a couple other tracks there, but we'll get to those more in a minute. Now let's look at those country boxes. So by Italy, Italy has a box with two little boxes underneath it for markers. It has its name on the top, it has its flag in the upper left, and then in the upper right it has a number. Every country has a number. That number is its stability number. The higher it is, the more staple that country is on its own, and the more difficult it is to control that country. Italy's number is relatively low. It's only a two. So if you have two influence points worth of markers into Italy, you then control it. Your influence markers are double-sided. There's a white side and a blue or a red side on the reverse side. Use the white side when you're present in that region, but you don't control it. Once you've reached control, say in Italy, say I had two, I could flip it to the red side if I was Russia to show that I now have control of Italy. In order to have control, you must have equal to that number, so I must have at least two, and I have to have at least the stability number more than my opponent. So right now it's two to zero. I have control. If my opponent were to play one into Italy, it would now be two to one. I would not control it. In order to control it, I need to be three to one or four to two or something like that. I need to have at least two and two more than anyone else. It works the same way if you had a country like West Germany that has a stability number of four. You need to get up to four to control it, and you need to have four more than your opponent. If at any time you would lose control because an opponent went in there, you would flip your marker over to the white side to show that you're not in control of it. Being in control of countries is important for the scoring. Now, some of these countries on the map are more important than others. Those countries are called battleground countries. 
Most of the country's titles are in yellow. Those are normal countries. But the very important countries, such as Poland and Italy and East and West Germany and Thailand and India, these are influential and important countries. And they are signified of that by having their names in purple instead of yellow. Whoever controls more battlegrounds is going to get extra points. You'll notice also that the map is wonderfully color-coded. Asia is orange, Africa is yellow, Europe is purple, and so on. And that is because that is how scoring works. Someone will play a car that says Europe scoring and Europe is purple. So you'd look at all the purple countries and see who controls which countries to determine who scores victory points. You'll also notice that there is a light and a dark purple. Light purple is for Eastern Europe and darker purple is for Western Europe. This is for events. A lot of the events allow you to play in either Western or Eastern Europe. And you'll notice that some of the Asian countries are light orange and dark orange. That's considered Southeast Asia. That's where Thailand and Burma are. These are significant for events and scoring as well, so just be aware of that. The countries are connected to certain other countries by black lines or a red dotted line if it's in a different region, and that shows you what country they're considered adjacent to. Some of these lines aren't maybe where you would expect, so pay attention to which are connected and which are not. And you'll notice some peculiar things like Turkey is considered to be in Western Europe, and this is more of a political designation than a geographic one, along with the adjacency issues. Some of the ones that are connected are countries that are interacting politically. So really pay attention to how the board works in your first few games. Next, let's look at the game cards. The cards are the heart of this game, and they are staged into three separate decks. An early war deck, a mid-war deck, and a late war deck. You will use the early war cards for the first three turns of the game. And then when you begin turn four, you'll shuffle in to the unused cards, the mid-war cards. The same thing will happen in turn eight, if you get to turn eight. Just as I said earlier, a lot of times this game will end before that, turns five, six, or seven maybe. But if you get to turn eight, then you'll shuffle in the late war cards into the remaining deck. There are two major features of these cards in the deck. Each card has an event, some sort of event that happened in the Cold War. And that's why they're staged. The early ones are the ones that happened earlier in history and so on. So you have a title of the event and then a description of the effect that the event can have. But more important is the star in the upper left-hand corner. In the star is a number, and that number is the amount of operations value that that card can give you, and that number will range between 1 and 4. There's also a great clue right there on the card in the star. The star will either be red, white, or red and white, and that color tells you who that event is for, who the event is good for. The white stars are events that are good for the United States. The red stars are events that are good for the Soviet Union. And the split stars could be used by either player. So in each turn, you're going to get a hand of cards. And in each round, you're going to play one of those cards. And you're either going to just use the number for what's called operation value, or you're going to play it for the text on the bottom of the card. Most of the time, you'll be choosing between doing those operation points or by doing the text on the card. So the next fundamental concept in this game is what do you do with operation points? What operations points are used for? So operation points. A lot of the times you're simply just gonna play this card and use that number between one and four. Okay, I get three points, I'm gonna use my three points. How do you use your points? Well, there's three things you can do with the points adding influence tokens, staging coups, or doing realignment rolls. Most of the time, you'll be adding influence tokens with those operations points. Sometimes you'll do coups, and very, very rarely might you do those realignment rolls. So first of all, adding influence tokens to the board. You want to do that because that's what lets you get control of countries. So say I had three operations points. I'd play the card, I'd get three points, so that basically that means I can put three tokens on the board. Where can I put them? I have to sort of grow out from where I am. You start the game having some starting tokens on the board. So you can start playing tokens in countries that you're already in or in countries that are adjacent to the countries that you're already in. So if I had three points, 
I start the game in Iraq, so maybe I would take those three points and put them in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has a stability number of three, so then I could control Saudi Arabia and put a three there, and there you go. You can split them up. I could put one down in the Mideast, say, and then put two connected to a country I'm already in uh, in Europe. You can also always start in any country that's adjacent to your home country. For example, Russia is adjacent to Romania and Poland. So you can always place adjacent to those as, as sort of a restart point. What you cannot do is go two countries away in the same round. So I'm not allowed to put some tokens in Germany, which I wasn't in, and then continue that to put tokens in France. I can only put tokens one country away from where I was at the start of that round. Now, controlling countries is good, especially you're trying to get control of those battleground countries because those will score you points. But the other advantage of having control is it's harder for your opponent to get in to that country. If an opponent controls a country, you have to pay two operation points for every one influence you want to put there. So say America had control of Italy. They had two influence there. And I had my three operations points. I could spend two of them to put one in there, and now it's two to one. Um, America is no longer in control because they need to be up by two based on the stability number to be in control. So it's two to one, no one's in control. I've used two of my points. I can use my final point to get one more point in Italy. So now it's two to two. I used my three operations points to get two influence in Italy, but no one controls it yet. Someone would have to get up to four to two. It can be advantageous to over-control regions because then it gets really hard for someone to get back control of that. Say someone had three control in Italy. Say America had three control in Italy. I spent two operation points to get one influence. Now it's three to one. America still has control. I would need another two operations points to get another one. So by putting more control in there that is necessary, you can make it very hard for your opponent to get back into that country. That's basically the most common thing that you're going to do. You're going to play a card, say, okay, I'm going to play this for operations points. I'm going to use it to add influence tokens. It's worth four operations points. Now I can add four more influence markers to places that I'm adjacent. If my opponent controls it, as long as they control it, I have to spend two operations points just to get one influence token there, hopefully knocking their control out so now I can add more to that. Or at least I've taken them out of control so they're going to lose that for scoring. That's basically the heart of the game right there, is you're trying to increase your board position in these different regions by taking control of the battleground countries and the other countries in each region so that when those scoring cards come up, you score more points than your opponent. However, there are two other things that you could do with those operation points instead. You could do a coup or realignment rolls. A coup, you're trying to overthrow the government. So basically what you want to do is you're trying to get rid of your opponent's influence and add yours all at the same time. These can be very efficient. However, they also rely on a die roll. So you're never sure how that's going to work out. You pick a country where your opponent has influence. For example, the Soviet Union player might choose to stage a coup in Iran. America starts the game with one influence in Iran. Typically, you want to stage coups in areas with low stability numbers because the stability number is a negative modifier in your success in having a coup. Say I'm using three operation points. The success of my coup is determined by adding that operation point value, that's three, and then I roll the die. Say I got a four. My coup value is seven. I subtract from that double the stability number. So like I said, Iran is two. Two times two is four. So it's seven minus four is three. My coup had a success of three influence. Hooray! So remember the American player had one influence there. We're going to remove that one influence there and put two of my influence there because one plus two is three. It's a little bit of a strange formula, but once you do it enough, it'll just become second nature. The formula, again, is my die roll plus the operation value of the card, say the card I'm playing has a four on it, plus my die roll, and then I'm going to subtract double the stability number. So if I coup in, say, Colombia, only has a stability of one, so I only have to subtract two from the operations value plus the die roll. Typically, people coup in 
countries with stabilities one or two as it gets pretty difficult to succeed in stability numbers of three or four because in that case you're subtracting six or eight. But whatever your success is, if it's if it's more than zero, say I got a four, I'd get to remove as much of my opponent's influence. Say my opponent had three influence there. My success was a, a coup of four. Now I got to take off three of my opponents and add one of my own. So coups, when successful, can be very strong. And nothing bad can really happen to you. All that can happen is maybe you waste your action if you roll a one and don't get it above that minimum number. But there are two other effects from a coup. Remember we talked about that DEFCON level? If you stage a coup in a battleground country, a country with a purple name on, in its box, then DEFCON lowers one space. People start to get a little bit nervous. So maybe you'd go from DEFCON 5 to level 4. Then staging a coup counts as military operations done by your country. You know, for all this defense budget, you're expected to do a certain number of things with your military each turn. And if you don't, you're going to lose victory points for doing that. You need to have conducted an equal number of military operations equal to the DEFCON level. So at the beginning of the game, the DEFCON is five and you have done zero military operations. But say I just did that coup with a three operations points level, then that counts as three military operations. So I would move my counter up on the track to the three. Now I'm in pretty good shape. And this is one of the reasons that coups are important. The only ways to get military operations are from event cards that you play. Specific ones will give you military operations. But most of the time you're going to have to do a coup to get three or four military operations because if you don't, you're going to get penalized victory points. So again, what are you doing with coups? You're hoping to remove your opponent's influence in a country and put yours there. You take the operations value of the card, you add the die roll, you subtract twice the stability number. Whatever the result is, you get to subtract that from whatever the opponent has and add your own influence there. If it was in a battleground, only if it was in a battleground, DEFCON goes down one space, you get military operations equal to the value of the operations card that you played. So if I played a three, I'm gonna go up to the three. There's only five levels on the track because the most military operations you need is five because the highest DEFCON can be is five. So that is coups. The third thing you can do with operations points on your turn, but however, I'll tell you, I've done it only maybe once or twice in the seven or eight times that I've played the game. So you can pretty much ignore this option uh, if you want to. As you start to learn the game, you might find that there's a good moment to use this realignment option. The problem is that that coup action is a lot of times significantly better because it gives you those military operations, whereas the realignments do not. Realignments allow you to remove opponent's influence. However, if you fail, um, then you could lose influence if you have influence in that area. If I play three operations points, I can do three realignment rolls. I pick a country, both my opponent and myself get to roll a die. We get to add modifiers for control of adjacent countries and having support in that region. And whatever the difference is of that, whoever wins by more gets to subtract influence from his opponent in that country. And if I used a three operations card, I'd get to do that three times. So if you can get yourself in a situation where you have a lot of adjacent friendly countries, this can be a good move, but most of the time, simply doing a coup is better. One thing that's different about realignment rolls and coups, when you coup, it's one roll to affect one country. When you do realignments, they use three operation points. You can do three rolls in three separate countries, or you could do all three rolls in the same country. Now, speaking of coups and realignments, the DEFCON has another important impact on the game. As tensions get high between the two countries and the DEFCON level goes down, you are prohibited from doing coups or realignments in certain locations. Once the DEFCON goes to four, you can't do coups or realignments in Europe. You just can't. It's just totally illegal. Once it goes to three, you can't coup or realign in Europe or Asia. Once it gets to two, you cannot coup or realign in Europe, Asia, or the Middle East. 
but you can still go crazy in Central South America or Africa. With the exception that remember, when you coup in a battleground region, DEFCON goes down one space. And so if DEFCON is at two, you may no longer coup in a battleground country, no matter where it is on the map. Well, you can, and if you do, and if your opponent's a real jerk, he'll just say, okay, you just lost the game, which you will have done because you brought DEFCON to level one and you blew up the world. Or if your opponent's a little bit of a nicer guy and you're not in a tournament, he'll probably just say, you shouldn't do that, otherwise you lose. So the DEFCON restrictions are, as it gets lower, there's certain regions you can no longer coup or realign in. And once it gets to DEFCON 2, no more cooing in Battlegrounds. But to sum up, that's the basics of how the game is played. You're going to take turns playing cards, and a lot of times you'll just use that number 1 to 4. And most of the time you do that, you're just going to add more tokens to the board. But you might also stage a coup. Because of those restrictions that happen as DEFCON goes down, players typically coup as early as they can because once that DEFCON goes down, you can no longer coup in Europe. So a lot of times it's common to see the Soviet Union player coup in Europe the first turn of the game so that the American player can't. It also takes care of that military operations requirement that both players need to worry about. So that right there is the core of the game players playing cards using those operations points. But of course, also, there are those events on the cards, and so I think we need to talk about how those are used. How to play a card. So, players take turns playing cards. As I said, most often players will play it for that number between 1 and 4 and add more tokens to the board. But there's also the options of the events on the cards. Now, here's the fun part. You will have some cards in your hand that will be good for you, and some cards in your hand that will be bad for you. Let's say that you are the Soviet Union. Remember, the red starred cards are cards with events that help the Soviet Union. That's the good news. Here's the bad news. If you have a card that helps you, you have to decide whether you want to play the card for the event text or you want to use the operations points on the cards. And typically, the stronger the event is, the higher the operations value on the card will be. So if you might have this really juicy event that, that's really pretty good, but it has an operations value of four, and those four ops, as we call them, us Twilight Struggle professional players, we, we play ops points, that choice between playing four ops and getting that juicy event is a pretty tough one. And so you'll, you'll have to decide how to play those cards. Split cards work the same way, they're red or white. If the stars are red and white, you can use the event to help you, so you'll have to choose between using the ops or the event. But, if you're that Soviet Union player, and you will have some cards with white stars on them, these are events that are good for your opponent. Now, obviously, you don't have a choice here. You're going to want to play them for the ops. And you get those ops. That's the good news. But here's the bad news. When you play a card with your opponent's event, they get to resolve the event. The active player gets to decide whether they want their opponent to do the event before or after they play their operations points, and there might be strategic reasons why you might want to go before or after, but it is going to happen. For example, there is a card called U.S.-Japan Mutual Defense Pact. This is a white four card, and so if I'm the Soviet Union and this is stuck in my hand, I get to play it for four operations points, and maybe I add four influence markers to the board, and then I say, all right, now you can do the event, which allows him to take automatic control of Japan, which is sad for me. But there was nothing really I could do, do about it because you have to play most of the cards in your hand. You might just have one or two left over, but you have to play almost all of them. So a lot of times it's just the issue of timing when you're going to play it. So what do the events do? A lot of them allow you to remove influence on the board or place more influence on the board. Some of them will score you victory points immediately. One note about placing influence from events. Placing influence from events is not like adding influence from operations points. 
If an event on a card allows you to add influence, you can do that irrespective of the fact that you're not adjacent to anything or irrespective of the fact that your opponent maybe controls that country. You don't have to pay two for one or anything like that. You just get straight up what the card allows you to place down. So the events in that way, in allowing you to break those rules in places that you're not in or in places where your opponent already has control, can be pretty powerful. Now there's two important markers on a lot of the events that's important to recognize. Most of the cards in the game are marked with an asterisk after the title. What the asterisk signifies, and it's also written in red italics on the bottom, it signifies that after it's played as an event, it gets removed from the game. And that's important because a lot of the deck is going to get reshuffled back in. But once a card is played as an event, you put it back in the box. So if I play Vietnam Revolts as an event to get the goodies, or if my opponent plays it for operations points and then I get to resolve Vietnam Revolts, the event has been used and the card goes back in the box. Now, if I have Vietnam Revolts and I just play it for the two operations points instead of getting the event, then it just goes in the discard pile to allow it to come back, either to me or my opponent who will have to deal with it. So this adds some strategy to the game. If you play a lot of your events early, they won't come back. Some of the events have persistent effects, meaning they, they affect things throughout the course of the game. And these are signified by a red underline, and you can keep these out in front of you sort of for the rest of the game. And there's also these little bitty counters uh, that you can put out on the board to help you remind you of these effects that don't go away. For example, one of the cards uh, turns Taiwan from a regular country into a battleground for the United States. And so you could keep that out so that everybody remembers Taiwan is now a battleground for the U.S. So that's playing cards. If you're playing your own card, you have to choose between the operations or the event. If you're playing your opponent's cards, they're going to get the event. You get to decide before or after you use those operations points. But there is one other option. If you really don't like a card, you can discard the card. And there's only one way to do that per turn. And that is to it, try to advance in the space race. The space race is very simple. Uh, what you do is you discard one of the cards in your hand as your turn. It has to have a minimum operations value. For example, the first one says two ops. So you can't ditch a one ops card. This is very important. Then you're going to roll the die and try to achieve the result listed on the space race track. The first base, for example, says one to three. So you got a 50-50 shot of making some sort of a space race advancement, like the first one is Earth Satellite. And the space race is significant for a couple reasons. The best thing it does is it lets you get rid of those scary cards in your hand. But keep in mind, they'll only go to the discard pile. They're not removed from the game, so they could come back. But they could also give you a little bit of bonuses. Uh, as you can see in the first square on the track, there's a two numbers, two slash one. And what that means is the first person to get an Earth satellite will score two victory points. The second person will score one victory point. The second space gives you a special ability. The second box is Animal in Space, and that allows you to play two space race cards per turn. But you only have that ability for as long as you are at that square and your opponent hasn't gotten to that square yet. So the game encourages you to sort of chase after each other in that way. It's sort of neat. So your full round options. Uh, most often you're going to play one of those cards and use the operations to maybe add tokens to the board or maybe doing a coup. If it's your card, you'll have to choose between doing the operations or the event. If it's your opponent's card, you're going to have to play it for ops, triggering the event that helps them. Or if there's one that you really don't like, on one of those six or seven rounds during the turn, you can ditch one of them to space, um, you know, rolling the die to see if you advance on the track and get either some victory points or a special ability. At the end of a turn, you'll have either one or two cards left. Now, here's the stinky part. You don't get to get rid of the cards in your hand. You're stuck with them. So you may think, oh, I'm just not going to play that. Well, you'll still have that issue next turn, and you'll probably have more issues dealt to you. So sometimes it's a good idea just to deal with that stinky card in your hand because they never go away. You do not discard the cards you carry over from turn to turn. Now, you might also get one of the scoring cards. In the early deck, there are three scoring cards. Europe scoring, MIDI scoring, and Asia scoring. 
If you are dealt one of those three cards, you have to play it as one of your card plays by the end of the turn. Now this is a good thing because you know which region is going to be scored in that turn and your opponent will not. It's a bad thing because you have to sort of give up one of your actions to do it. So you can try to be sort of sneaky and try to just, you know, put a few things in Europe if you have that Europe card to get a better scoring position. But if you're too obvious about it, obviously your opponent's going to sort of try to follow you and fight you for that region as well. When you play the scoring card, how does it work? Well, each player is graded on three levels. Players either going to just have presence, they're going to be dominating it, or have total control. All you need for presence is control of one country, any country in the region. In order to dominate a region, you'll score more points for doing that, but it's more difficult. You have to control more total countries and more battleground countries in that region than the opponent. And you have to control at least one non-battleground and one battleground. Say in Europe, there's something like 20 countries, but only five of those are battlegrounds. So getting three of those battlegrounds is a good situation, but you also have to have more total countries, and then you are considered dominating the region. In order to control a region, you have to control more countries and every battleground in the region. So if you had those five battlegrounds and more total countries, then you would have total control. Now, how it's scored is a little bit funky because, again, we're only scoring the difference in victory points scored. So say USA was dominating Europe, but the Soviet Union had presence in Europe. Each region has a box to show how many points each level is worth. Domination in Europe is worth seven. Presence in Europe is worth three. So USA scores seven, Russia scores three, the difference is four. So America is going to score four points. Then you also get points for how many battlegrounds you have and for controlling countries that are adjacent to your enemy's home. So let's say America had three battlegrounds and USSR had two battlegrounds. The difference is one, so America is going to get one more victory point. Say America also controlled Romania, which is adjacent to the Soviet Union. Since America controls a country adjacent to the bad guy, they're going to get one more point. So their total scoring for that would be six. And six is, you know, typically a, a decent scoring for a region, getting somewhere uh, between four and eight points. A lot of times what you'll see is when one of these are played, it can be a total wash. Maybe both players have presence, so no points are scored there. Maybe one player has one more battleground than the other, so maybe Maybe they'll score one point, but they didn't have more countries. So the only scoring out of that region would be one point, and that's pretty common when things are pretty tight in a region. But that's how scoring works. When a player plays a scoring card, you compare who's at what level. You see what the difference is between those two and score points accordingly. You score for the number of battlegrounds more than the opponent. If someone has two more battlegrounds than the opponent, then they'll get two points. And you also get a point if someone controls a country adjacent to their enemy. And that's one of the major sources for getting points. A few of the cards have events on them that may give you a couple points. But mostly how you're going to get points in order to get towards that 20 mark to win the game is by being in a better position when that scoring card comes out. The last special card that we need to talk about is called the China card. This represents uh, the importance of China and how both players were sort of trying to woo China to support one side or the other. The Soviet player gets to start with the China card and this instead of being in the player's hand it's sort of face up in front of them. What the China card does is it gives you four ops and that's a valuable thing. You're only going to probably have one or two four ops cards uh, in your hand. So you can play it for four ops or because it's China, you can use it for five ops if you play all of the operations, either uh, placing influence or doing a coup or doing a realignment. If you do it all in Asia, then you'll get five ops instead. So it gives you a little boost. The other nice thing that it does is remember you have to play most of the cards in your hand. So having the China card allows you to play one less card in your hand that you don't want to. So having the China card is definitely going to give you an edge in that turn. Now the trick is, is when you use it, it goes to your opponent face down and they'll get to flip it up to use on the next turn. So the Soviet player has the option of whether to burn that on the first turn or sort of hold on to it to keep it away from the American player. And that's all you need to know about playing cards. Most of the time you play them for the ops. If you play opponent's cards, they're going to get to resolve the event. Your cards you're going to have to choose. Remember, you can ditch one card, any card, as long as you meet that minimum ops to the space race. One card per turn 
And if you get a scoring card, you're going to have to play it sometime during that turn. The China card will be available to one of the players, and if they use it, it's going to go to their opponent. Now we can talk about the full structure of the game. The full structure of the game. So now that you understand how those cards work, let's pull it all together with the full structure of the game. First thing you do on a turn is you move DEFCON one space towards the left, towards peace. Things calm down a little bit in between each turn. On the first turn, it will just be at five. Next, you'll deal out the cards. In the first three turns of the game, players are dealt eight cards, not counting the China card. Remember, the China card is like sort of an extra goodie, so it gives you a little more flexibility. Starting with turn four, players will be dealt nine cards each turn, and that is because the number of action rounds go from six rounds of playing cards to seven rounds of playing cards. The next thing that happens is what is called a headline phase. Before players start playing normal card rounds, they are going to simultaneously choose one of the cards in their hand to play for the event only. So you'll read through your cards. Normally you'll pick one of the events that are good for you, but if you have one of uh, the events you know that you're going to have to get rid of anyways for your opponent, you might choose one of those. You could even choose a scoring card. So both players would pick one of those at the same time, and you would flip them over. You resolve them in descending ops value. Whoever had the higher operations value will do theirs first. And of course, if I'm the Soviet player and I play a white card, then the American player will get to make the decisions for that card. If someone's played a scoring card, that has an ops value of zero. So it's a little bit of a risk because if someone has a, an event that can help them get the edge in the scoring, that could be bad for you. Then we start playing the normal action rounds. The Soviet player, one of their advantages is they always get to go first. So the Soviet player will play a card for operations or for the event. After they're done resolving that card, they'll take the token over on the round track and they will flip it over to the blue side, to the American side. Then the American player will play a card. When they're done, they will flip that token over on the round marker over to the red side and move it to the two. So you can keep track of what round it is. It's very important. Do not forget to move that round marker because otherwise it can be very confusing to try to count the number of cards in your hand, try to figure out what round you're on. So in the first three turns, you'll keep going back and forth six times, playing ops, having coups, resolving events. Remember, you could ditch up to one card to the space race. Somebody has a scoring card, they have to play it. They can't hold on to it in between turns. That is called cheating. And after six rounds on that first turn, then the turn will almost be over. You just have some cleanup steps. Remember I told you that you have to do a number of military operations. That number is equal to the DEFCON level. So say the DEFCON level was at three, and the Soviet player was at the th on the three at the track, and the American player was on zero. The Soviet player is good. The American player was short by three. So the Soviet player gets three victory points because the American player didn't do three of the military operations that they were supposed to do. Remember, you're only scoring the difference. So say the DEFCON level was at three and both players were at zero. Both players will have lost three victory points. But since both players are minus three, the net difference is zero. So you wouldn't move the victory point token. After you score the military operations, those reset back to zero. And so now you'll be required again next turn to get that military operations marker up there so that you don't lose points. We move the turn marker. Whoever has the China card, if it's face down in front of them, you can flip that over so now they can use it on the following turn. Uh, make sure that military operations is back to zero and you are ready to go. Do it all over again. Improve DEFCON, deal cards, headline phase, pick a card for the event, action rounds, check for military operations, and you're all done. So how does the game end? The game will end immediately if a player reaches the 20 on the victory point track. Often this happens after a region scoring, you know, somewhere, somewhere in the middle of the mid-war, the game can often end. Another way to win this game is we mentioned those three different levels of scoring, presence, domination, and control. Well, typically control is often very hard to get. Remember to get control, you need all of the battlegrounds and more total countries. Now, because of the importance of Europe in world affairs, if someone after a European scoring card is played, if they manage to achieve control of Europe, they automatically win the game.
So that's another element to add an interesting wrinkle to this game. Whereas you can sort of give up on certain regions, you can never give up on Europe. Because if you let your opponent control it and the scoring card comes up, you lose. Also, remember, if a player causes the DEFCON level to go to DEFCON 1, they will lose the game. For example, if they coup in a battleground. And it's very important to realize that even if the opponent is resolving the event and makes the DEFCON go to 1, if you played the card that let them bring the DEFCON to 1, you're the person that loses the game. For example, I could play an operations card and the effect for my opponent would be to allow my opponent to play 1-Op. If the DEFCON level was at 2, the smart thing for my opponent to do would be, I'm going to stage a coup in a battleground. The DEFCON goes to 1. The Soviet player allowed the American player to do that through their card play, so they're the one that loses. You have to be very careful with that. When we were playing, we were sort of friendly about it the first few times that we played, so that you know if someone did something that accidentally allowed the other player to bring the DEFCON to level 1 and make them lose, we sort of said, you don't want to do that, that makes you lose but as you start to play this game three or four times you need to start figuring that out and know if you're going to do something that's going to go to defcon one in the unlikely event that you actually get through all 10 turns what happens is you score every region on the board just as if these scoring cards came out hitting 20 no longer ends it you have to actually go through all the scoring to see where the victory point marker ends up and whoever is positive in victory points at that point will win the game Part 3. The Hamster. How to win the game. It's time for strategy. Twilight Struggle, although it may seem like it has a lot going on, the object of the game and the strategic focus is very simple. There's three things that you need to focus on if you want to win Twilight Struggle. And they are board position, board position, and board position. This game reminds me of a few other games like uh, Agricola and Through the Ages that, as my friend Jeff Engelstein said, um, those games have a lot of shiny things. You know, you see those occupation cards, those tech cards, or, you know, in this game it's these event cards and you see all these, ooh, I could do this, I could do this, I could do this. Focus! It's all about board position. Don't get distracted playing events that aren't going to improve your current situation. In the early war, there are three scoring cards in the deck. Europe scoring, Midi scoring, Asia scoring. In the first three turns, you're going to focus on trying to dominate those three regions. Most of the deck is going to come through on the first two turns, so it's likely that those three regions will score in turn one and turn two. If they score in turns one and two, you know they're coming back after the deck reshuffles. After a card has been played, start focusing on those other regions where the scoring card has not yet been played. In turn four, all of the other scoring cards come into the deck, and that is the Africa scoring, Central America scoring, South America scoring, and Southeast Asia scoring. So it's a good strategy to start to build your board position starting in about turn three starting to get ready for turn four, because you could get that scoring card right away, and if you're built up in Africa and have Africa scoring, bang, you can steal a lot of points. There are some cards that will give you a couple victory points. Don't play those for the events. Play them for the ops and get better board position. The key to getting board position is controlling and even over-controlling, over-controlling by one, the stability number, into those battleground regions, so it makes it really hard for your opponent to get back in there. When you play your ops, try to most efficiently improve your board position. And you have four ops, figure out how can I play these so that if a scoring card were to come up, I would score more points. Whether I'm going from presence to dominating, or it gives me presence into, into a location, or it gives me one more battleground. Try not to waste operation points, because the whole game is about who uses their operations points more wisely. So as I said, it's a simple game. Focus on which scoring cards are coming out. If you need to, look in the discard to see which scoring cards have already came out and focus on improving your board positions in the countries that are coming up. Generally, what you're gonna wanna do is play your cards. If you're the Soviet player and you have red star cards, most of the time you're probably just gonna play those cards for the ops. 
unless you read the event and the event is going to help the board position in the region that you're trying to get better at. If the event isn't going to help you, save it. Because remember, if you play it as an event, it's going out of the game forever. If you just play it for ops, it's likely it's going to come back to your opponent and annoy them. This is a game where if you really want to get good at it, you're going to have to learn the deck. You're going to have to start to memorize the cards. As I said, you don't need to know that late war deck that much, uh, but you need to start to memorize the early and mid war cards. Specifically, there's probably about 10 or 20 cards that take influence out of specific countries. And if you know which of those countries those are, that's a, a pitfall for you to avoid. Egypt and Cuba and Romania. Once you start playing it, you'll get to learn the countries that you just don't want to play in because you know somebody's going to play that event that's just going to knock you out of there anyway. Next, play the DEFCON game. Most of this game is sort of manipulating that DEFCON level. If you're the Soviet player, you have the advantage in that you can coup first, and you should probably use that. Cooing on the first turn is a pretty standard move because you can coup in Europe if you want to. It allows if you coup and then they coup and then you can coup a second time, you will get two coups and they will only get one coup. Cuckoo! You really should be cooing. Cooing can be a very efficient way to take out an opponent and take control of an important battleground area. Also is important because if you get those military operations and your opponent doesn't, that can be a nice cheap way to get some victory points. And if you can bring it down to DEFCON 2 so that they can't coo in a lot of places anymore, that might stop them from doing what they want to do. So you need to stay aware of the DEFCON levels. One thing I will tell you is for players that are new to this game, the game heavily favors the Soviet player. So in your first few games, and I'll tell you from personal experience, my, my friend Kevin and I played this uh, seven times, I think, and it took till the seventh play that we had the American player be able to defeat the Soviet player. And I'm curious to see if that sort of evens out as we go forward. Uh, a lot of experienced players of the game say that that typically does when you have two experienced players, that the game is much more 50-50. But just be prepared to experience that. And some of the tips that I've just given you, having the American player really focus on board position and playing their white cards for points and not for events, forcing the, the Russian player to deal with those events is going to help you. And one of the greatest pieces of advice that I read on this game which really made a lot of sense having played it a few times, was from an article actually by the designer, Jason Matthews, giving some basic tips on how the American player should win. Some uh, An article I definitely recommend. But one of the best pieces of advice he said about this game was the key to victory for winning this game is forcing your opponent to react to you. If you make your opponent chase you, then you're going to be in a good position. And vice versa, if all you do is react to your opponent's moves, being scared of him playing a certain scoring card, you're probably not playing your operations points the most optimally. Don't chase your opponent. Make your opponent chase you. And if you manage to do that, if you focus on board position, if you really just use your operations points, force your opponent to play your bad nasty events you know the deck well you play that defcon level well you, you make your opponent chase you then you the american can have the upper hand you will feel as rocky does in rocky 4 from 1985 when he says <clears throat> oh adrian adrian always tells the truth no maybe i can't win maybe the only thing i can do is just take everything he's got. But to beat me, he's going to have to kill me. And to kill me, he's going to have to have the heart to stand in front of me. And to do that, he's got to be willing to die himself. I don't know if he's ready to do that. I don't know. Oh. Rocky IV gets me every time. I think that's enough for this episode of the How to Play podcast. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. I've really enjoyed exploring this game, and I hope that you'll tackle it with one of your best gamer friends and just have fun exploring it over 10 or 20 or 100 plays. It really is a great game. Thank you once again to GMT Games for supporting the show and sending this game out to me. And thank you so much, all of you, for listening. This has been Ryan Sturm of the How to Play Podcast.
That wraps up this episode of How to Play, but be sure to visit us on our website, www.howtoplaypodcast.com, for all the How to Play resources, to discuss the show, to contact me, or to show your appreciation for the show with a PayPal donation. I count on your support to help keep How to Play growing. If you use and love the How to Play podcast, I need your help. Show your appreciation by making a donation, spread the word about the show, and just let me know what you think about the show there at the Guild. Thanks again to you, the How to Play listeners around the world. And until next time, I hope you will learn, teach, and play great games. The How to Play podcast is part of the Dice Tower Network, the premier board gaming media network, featuring Ludology and the flagship podcast, The Dice Tower. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Hey, hey, what are you doing? I can't believe you are ending the show. What? What's going on? Who are you? I'm Sergei, your Russian stereotype character. Who else would I be? You had the Wolfgang on the German episode, you had... Bernard on the Notre Dame episode, so I'm Sergey. I'm here for the Twilight Struggle episode to speak with bad Russian accent to entertain your listeners. Well, actually, Sergey, nobody really likes the, the bad foreign accents that I do, so I, I figured I would just skip the, the whole foreign accent gag on this one. What? But I'm hilarious! Can't you hear my hilarious Russian accent? It is not very bad and also not very good. I'm I'm hilarious. I'm like that guy on Perfect Strangers. The people will love me. Mm, no, I, I don't think so.